Welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about or largely inspired by the life and legacy of this remarkable German church leader, Lutheran pastor, a moral philosopher, theologian, Christian ethicist, on and on and on it goes. Bonhoeffer, in his short life of 39 years, uh, lived several lives, did a lot more than most of us will do in uh, twice uh, those numbers of years. And he left us, marvelously, uh, a body of work that we still rely on, or many people do, uh, to guide our approach to questions involving morality, ethics, sociality, that is how human beings live together, and particularly how Christians do that. Bonhoeffer was a Christian minister, uh, but his insights on ethics and morality, and even theology, certainly um, of humanism, apply across the board. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate and even to apply Bonhoeffer's insights. And that's what we do at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, D.C., which is the sponsor of this podcast. We take Bonhoeffer's unique ideas and we apply them to the ethical questions of our own day, particularly the really crucial, really consequential really complicated ones. And one of those topics is gun violence in America. And recently I had the opportunity to visit Temple Sinai, which is one of the most vibrant Jewish communities in the nation's capital, and to talk about this very sensitive and consequential subject. I was invited there by Steve Klitzman, who heads the Temple Sinai Gun Violence Prevention Group. I want to thank him and Rabbis Roos and Rosenwasser, who welcomed me there, as well as the team that tackles this very difficult question there at Temple Sinai. Had a lovely time on a Sunday morning over brunch. And my talk, while it started out on the topic of my book, they wanted to know a little bit about my book with Harper Collins, the memoir, Costly Grace, an Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love. But I segued rather quickly to chapter 28 in the book, which is how I was introduced to the question of gun violence and the use of lethal force by Christians in particular and evangelicals uh, even more specifically. And you'll hear me describe uh, something in that talk that I just want to draw your attention to, because while I describe it, you won't be able to see it, of course. And that is uh, a, an actual physical object that I think uh, embodies or exemplifies or makes very obvious the core of this problem in my religious community that is the evangelical world, and it's what I call the gun Bible. And you'll hear me describe it, 
it looks very much like the typical black leather Bible covers that we use, uh, you know, to protect our, uh, you know, sacred scriptures when we carry them. And, you know, typically you'll see an evangelical with a big black Bible under his or her arm. And sometimes they're in one of these zippered cases that protect them and that hold all your notes and your multicolored pens and the other things you use to mark your Bibles. That's very typical behavior of evangelical Christians. We are uh, Bible markers. We, we mark up our Bibles. We deface them. <laughs> and we do that for very practical purposes. But this particular Bible case is not a Bible case at all. And you'll hear me describe that, and you'll see a video of it on our uh, TDBI Facebook page. So make sure you go there. You'll find links all around this, uh, this podcast. And go to Facebook to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, and you'll find a video of this so you can actually see it. So for now, though, just come on into the brunch room at Temple Sinai in Washington, D.C., and join in the conversation about gun violence and how religious people might approach this problem. And you'll hear me talk about how evangelicals have mishandled this very serious life and death question. So come on in the room at Temple Sinai and join me in a conversation on gun violence. If you choose to read my book, uh, you'll, you'll read this story as another complicating factor about uh, the course of an evangelical minister's life is uh, you know, the many different streams. Uh, I, I think we have more denominations than Judaism does, quite a few more. Uh, and so, you know, the stream that I was in um, had an historically anti-intellectual bent, highly suspicious of education, um, of science, of research. Uh, so I was actually uh, discouraged from pursuing formal education. Uh, if you had a call from God and you could demonstrate that, you were qualified to be ordained. And I was ordained very young at age 21, which is too young to be ordained. I now know. Uh, I thought I was hot shot then. Uh, and yet, uh, the Jewish culture in my family nagged me uh, in my mind. Uh, you are woefully deficient uh, in this. And so I, I actually secretly pursued my education because in my world, uh, we called seminaries, the formal graduate schools that trained clergy, uh, cemeteries, uh, because we thought uh, the pursuit of education would kill your faith. Uh, would actually militate against your faith. So um, everything was surreptitious, late in life, very complicated. It, I would be in my 30s before I achieved a master's degree. I was in my 50s by the time I was pursuing a doctorate. 
And I had to be careful who I told about that because I had donors who told me, you start going down that education path, I'll, I'll pull my money from you. And by then I was dependent on those people for millions of dollars every year. Uh, so I had to be very uh, careful uh, about what I was doing, but I did. And in my doctoral work, I had always dreamed of taking on this uh, man crush with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the, uh, the late and uh, in many ways posthumous mentor uh, that I had taken on. And uh, anybody know Bonhoeffer? Are you familiar with Bonhoeffer at all? Uh, uh, he's quite a complicated story, and I wanted to really delve into his life. Uh, and I took him on for my work. Uh, one of my principal advisors was uh, Dr. Peter Frick of uh, uh, St. Paul's College, uh, University of Ontario, Canada. Uh, one of the great uh, Bonhoeffer scholars in the world and native German speaker, uh, graduate of Tübingen where Bonhoeffer did much of his lecturing. And uh, one day Peter said to me halfway through, if, if you've done uh, your doctoral work, you know how awful this was when he came to me and said, uh, Rob, first of all, do you plan on mastering mid 20th century German? And I said, no, <laughs> nine. And uh, he said, well, then you're not going to do Bonhoeffer uh, because Bonhoeffer's unique uh, employment of German terminology is critical. You, you can't do Bonhoeffer. I was, I was crestfallen. I was just horrified. But he said, you are going to take on, uh, you're doing great work in uh, what was going on uh, in the backdrop which, of course, was uh, Nazism, the Holocaust, uh, the catastrophe uh, that was the Third Reich. But he said, in particular, you're doing excellent work on the church in Germany. I was looking at the Nazification of the church. And if you know about the Deutsche Christen movement in Germany, that was what I was looking at in particular. He said, let's go there. And that's where I ended up moving my research but when I did that, I, I discovered the parallels between what had happened to the Protestant church in Germany, which, mind you, uh, was the Evangelische Kirche, the evangelical church of Germany, and the parallels to what I was seeing in my own evangelical community were stunning. They were striking. I could not deny that the politicization that I was watching in my own church reflected in too many ways the Nazification of the Evangelische Kirche. The parallels were just stunning. So I looked at that and ended up with a dissertation entitled Bulwark Against Political Idolatry, the Necessity of a Theology of Church and State for American Evangelical Pastors. So if you're real, if you're real wonky and you have any interest in it, you can get it at PayHip. It'll cost you eight bucks in English. In English, yes. Um, but that set me on a course. This is 2000. Uh, 9 to 12, 
when I was doing my work. And right at that same time, I would be invited, everybody get ready to gasp, to the 80th birthday party of the televangelist Pat Robertson. And when I got to Pat's party here in Washington, the guest of honor was none other than a real estate mogul from New York named Donald Trump. And I watched Mr. Trump work that birthday party. And I wish I could say, you know, he did it brilliantly. It was really clunky, ham-handed, offensive. It was full of, of uh, mistakes, I mean, that you don't make with a high-powered evangelical audience. And yet, notwithstanding all those faux pas, and they were innumerable, and there were gasps in the room more, on more than one occasion. <laughs> You know, in the end, one of those national evangelical leaders would turn to me when I said to him, we can't let this happen. I don't know what he's doing here, but we can't let this happen. And this national leader said to me, who else is going to do it for us, Rob? And that told me what a crisis we were in, in that moment. And so, uh, all of this was going on when I received a phone call from a woman named Abigail Disney, who dared me to go on camera in an unrehearsed examination of my own evangelical community's embrace of popular gun culture. I wasn't raised with around guns. I was raised in western New York State where if you had a firearm in your home you were either the very rare hunter, an undercover cop, or mafia. Literally. I mean if you found a gun you would say they must be in the mafia. <laughs> I don't know why they have guns in this house. That was my orientation towards guns. So Ms. Disney said to me, you know, first of all, are you aware that your community is the religious subculture more likely to embrace unfettered gun rights than any other, and the one most likely to own or have access to a firearm? So what's with that? Particularly since you claim to uh, you know, to, to, to embrace an ethic that says every human life is sacred. How, how do you embrace this? And I said, well, I, I haven't really thought about it. The Second Amendment was just part of a big Republican package. It just came with the package. I hadn't questioned it. I would come to. But she dared me. I tell the story in the book. It wasn't an easy decision for me, but I decided in the end it was worth looking at. So I took it on. I would be shocked again in the process of doing the research, traveling the country, sitting, talking with national evangelical leaders on camera and off. I would discover first many of my colleagues 
were not only concealed carry permit owners, they were armed in the pulpit. I never knew that. One of my friends who I kept company with for 30 years said, Rob, I would never go to the pulpit without my nine millimeter. And if anybody ever gets up and makes a noise in this congregation, I will take them right out from the sacred desk. Now, just in case you think I'm hyperbolizing, I came with a little show and tell today. Now, what you're going to see is a, is a replica. It's plastic. So relax, everybody, relax. It's a toy. But I want to show you every evangelical always carries a big Bible in case you didn't notice. Usually it's faux leather. It's vinyl made to look like leather. Always has Holy Bible emblazoned on it. Lots of times it has a nice clever zipper case to protect the rice pages of Holy Writ that are inside, not with this Bible. This is one of the most popular Bible cases now being shipped to churches all over the country, made by an Arizona company called Garrison Grip. And inside you won't find the pages of Holy Scripture. You will find a holster that will pack any semi-automatic handgun. 9mm, 6 hour, 226, whatever you pick. And not only so, but uh, enough room uh, for an extra magazine of bullets in case you don't have enough ammo. To me, this illustrates the deep moral, ethical, and arguably spiritual crisis that my community is in. And this is where many people, for example, because of the position that I take, they often assume that I'm against armed defense. I'm not. I do think that when you take it on yourself to prepare to kill another human being, you face a unique array of moral and ethical uh, questions that have to be solved, that, that have to be resolved. And here, uh, give you an example uh, for the film. By the way, I bring show and tells. Uh, you can get the film uh, in a number of places. You can watch it on Netflix. You can watch it on uh, virtually all the film platforms. But um, you can also get it uh, on DVD if you still have spinning technology, <laughs> that old 19th century spinning technology. Um, if you still spin, uh, you can get it at Amazon. It's Armor of Light, uh, produced, uh, directed by Abigail Disney. And in preparation for the film, I had to undergo professional firearms training because I was not used to weapons. My trainer was a U United States Marine Corps firearms instructor. He was top quality. But this is the caveat he laid down for me. He said, before I train you, you must assure me that you can kill, you can kill in an instant without a second thought. Because in the moment you hesitate with the weapon, it will be taken from you in a violent struggle, 
it will be used to kill you, and then it will go on to kill others. So you have actually contributed to the problem. You have not solved the problem. You have contributed to the problem. Unless you can draw the weapon immediately and kill without a second thought. He said, you get yourself there, and then I will train you. That was a very, very difficult psychological exercise for me. But I thought I got myself there. I thought about the horrific moments that you allude to. And I said, okay, could I kill in that instance? Yes, I could. And I hope I would. So I told him that. He said, well, then let's go. But this, he went on to say, as soon as you put the weapon on your body, you are ready to kill. You are looking at the world through the eyes of a killer. Because you are prepared to kill, you may have to kill, and you will kill. That's your job with the weapon. Now, I would argue any time a person of religious conscience wakes and prepares and looks at the world to kill, they're in a unique moral and ethical um, moment in their, in their lives. And we have to ask a lot of questions about that. So this is the reason I say, uh, well, let me, let me digress and, and pardon me, I have a habit of, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, going off on these trails and interrupting myself. So pardon me, I'll interrupt myself for a minute and just say one of the jobs I had over my evangelical career was supervising military chaplains. And in fact, uh, the honorable ambassador was, by the way, uh, chief chaplain of the NYPD on 9-11 uh, and has her own chaplain stories to tell. And, and Ambassador, maybe you'll back me up here. Um, chaplains deal with the problem of moral injury. That is, the injury to the conscience and, and mind uh, of the shooter, a person who shoots and kills, even under the most justifiable of circumstances, suffers in the aftermath. So, we have to say, okay, who's going to do the killing? When, where, and how? And I would argue we must contain the damage done even by the shooting itself, even under justified circumstances. Because when a person, let's, let me give you an example, a little church uh, north of Philadelphia invited volunteers bring your weapons to church, help protect the congregation. There came a moment when a visitor who was troubled in spirit, Rabbi, you know this story, uh, troubled man came to church looking for solace. What better place to go than a faith community where he wanted to worship God and, and find some resolution to his internal conflicts, took a seat where a member of the congregation had already established, you know, ownership. That person came back, said, excuse me, I'm sitting here. He got distressed, started raising a little bit of a ruckus. Uh, an usher came by, said, sir, you know, maybe we can work this out. He got a little uh, more distressed and agitated. At that, a volunteer in the church 
stepped forward, flashed his concealed carry badge, which has no authority, no legal authority whatsoever. It's, it's a, you know, it's a toy. Flashed the badge, warned the man that if he, did, if he continued, he would have to take action. He drew his weapon, shot, and killed the visitor. This happened while the hymns were being sung in the sanctuary. This is the kind of thing that can occur that has occurred. So we have to ask the question, why, why are people coming armed? Are they coming armed, trained, responsible, held accountable, or have they come with an urge to be the hero of the day? And, and this is what presents, I think, a, a tremendous danger. So I'm sorry, that's a very long answer to your question, but it's the reason I've chosen to approach this question from a moral, ethical, and spiritual perspective. For me, it's not as much a policy uh, decision or even a security question. And I think there are many ways to protect a congregation uh, with non-lethal methods from the way we configure our buildings to how we guard them uh, to the conspicuous police cruiser out in the parking lot and at the entry points all these things are non-lethal ways of reducing the risk and i would advocate that we should pursue non-lethal before we entertain lethal <laughs>